Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very exciting double-digit 10th episode of Relating to DevSecOps, where we jump into the development, security, and operational issues of today with representation from different disciplines, professions, and specialties so that we can solve real-world problems with people that actually face them. On this podcast, we are challenging each other's perspectives, debating viewpoints on common topics, and getting other teams on our side. And today, we've got Jameson Colburn on DevOps, Simon Dolo for Prod Engineering, and as always, I'm Ken Toller, joining for security. Now, just a few admin items and announcements kicking it off. Now, last week, we covered the OWASP Top 10 and unpacked a few views from the Prod Engineering and DevOps side and maybe caused some sideways looks from industries. So we're going to deep dive into configuration management this week. Uh, secondly, I know that some folks are probably peeved that when it comes to A9 using components with known vulnerabilities that we didn't focus on the most obvious that critical vulnerabilities can cause severe problems like breaches and monetary and sometimes physical harm to users and businesses. But in the spirit of DevSecOps, we are working to focus on more than just the security viewpoint. But believe me, as a security professional, I'm just as worried about the security aspect. But obviously, when we're working to gain favor and buy-in and participation from other lines of business, we want to highlight different ways of looking at the problem. And last, but certainly not least, uh, before you get too bored, uh, as we <laughs> go down the configuration management train, next week, we will be having our very first guest, Jen Molyneux, on the show. Uh, we will be talking about Agile, Scrum, and project management in the DevSecOps world. And I won't ruin her introduction, but she's awesome, and she's going to be a force to listen to, so please tune in for that next week. Happy 10th episode! Yeah. So number 10, guys. Um, Excited about this one, and I think this is one of the the first times that we are, you know, sort of following up with with a, a you know previous topic and and sort of digging into part of this. So, all right, config management. Now, I I wanted to sort of roll things back on config management with you two because it was something we talked about a decent bit in the last episode, and I really think that it hit home that this is one of those categories in the OWASP top ten that engineers and DevOps practitioners can really, really help with. This is also an important point for security uh, folks that this is one of the categories where your two organizations can either be our biggest ally or our biggest headache. So I have my some questions for you all, and I'm sure that we'll derail again. But Simon and Jameson, when it comes to config management, um, who who should security go to to make any of these configuration changes in an application or infrastructure? And from your perspective, your you know perspectives, if I can speak today, who should be responsible? That's that's a tough question. I feel like depending on where your configuration is, whether it be you know some sort of YAML file or something like a service that's actually serving up properties of some sort. Uh, it's really a, I think it goes back to pull requests for me. It, it shouldn't be either or. Um, it depends on the property. It depends on on what you're changing. Uh, you know, if there's an application-focused uh, setting or configuration that you're changing, obviously I want eyes on it. But there are other things that may not be, you know, super in my purview. And you're talking about timeouts. You're talking about specific logging. Um, maybe more general, maybe more, you know, about application health, or it might be about um, its interaction with something a little bit fine grain. That's where I want someone like Jameson's eyes to be on it. 
Jameson, a perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, configuration management means a lot of different things depending on who you speak to, I guess, in the application's uh, context. Um, I would say, you know, an important thing that you don't always see is, you know, separating that configuration from your artifact, right? Like, I know in the early days of Docker, you would ship like, you know, <laughs> this is going to, this is going to sound terrible uh, in a modern context, but um, you would, you know, you use tools like Tiller to ship all of your possible properties in that container and then rely on environment uh, variables to activate a specific set of configurations. Um, that's, that's a really bad idea. Don't ever do that. Um, <laughs> but chiefly the thing with configuration management, I think that's important when it comes to at least applications is that, your configuration should be disjointed from your artifact or your code so that you can make configuration changes without, you know, without um, having to redeploy or do a release um, of the entire application. Right. And I, I think that that's kind of an important distinction that um, you don't see in a lot of places, but like, you know, things like 12 factor kind of brought that more to the forefront and, and now you see more folks doing it. But I mean, chiefly my, my perspective on it is that, Configuration, um, you know, it should be managed by the application owner, um, and and you know, kind of in conjunction with other teams, uh, I guess. But the ownership should live with the application owner since they're closest to it. Got it. Yeah, I mean, so you're right. Configuration management can mean different things to different people, and so let's try to just narrow it down a little bit because we're kicking off of the OWASP top ten conversation. We're talking about security misconfigurations, the perhaps a default config, and where you know where I'm seeing it mostly from the security side is when it goes one of two ways usually, uh, or or most commonly is that, like you said, there's a default uh, configuration that is insecure, or in order to achieve a certain functionality, either to test it or um, to maybe just put the training wheels on or look, look at something in development mode, you're intentionally disabling security features in order to, um, in order to get something running or because the documentation suggests it, you know, like you must enable exec or something, you know, in <sighs> some, some application or, you know, like things that you're looking to do that uh, result in security problems. Um, and then that just got me thinking about some of this other stuff that you're talking about, which is, you know, when an application owner is configuring something or Simon, what you're talking about, um, secret management and putting those into right. configuration files and managing those configs on a production level. Does that help? Yeah, I, I feel like we, in the last episode, we definitely talked about the dangers of configuration management or mismanagement, if you want. I, I, I think it's important to note that if you're doing it right, you can get a lot of benefit from uh, having a, a good, isolated, uh, maintained config. And, and it can be used as documentation. It can be used as a bridge between the three of us. It can be used as a place to standardize maybe some things we can automatically configure at the for security. Uh, so I, I, I I think it's important that to to know that this is an actual it's a good thing. Right. So yeah, I mean, Jameson, one of the first things that comes up for configuration management testing is testing for network infrastructure configuration. And I found that sort of interesting to 
to see in you know the the tangential references that we were talking about in the last episode because typically you're not looking at that for um, from an application security perspective, but it's in there. And so I think that when it comes to that network infrastructure and automation and the fact that DevOps is now handling that and those are being handled through sort of what Simon said, pull requests and things of that nature, that it now becomes an application security responsibility. So it's it's sort of like how, you know, who do we approach? You're saying it's the application owner's responsibility, but where does that begin and end? And when does a security professional or when should a security professional go to one over the other within an application? Yeah, How do we I mean, draw that line? I'd say that's kind of a, it's it's kind of like a, a high rope act, right? Of trying to figure out, you know, it, it, it differs organization to organization, right? Like in a more SRE type model, um, you know, that, that ownership of that underlying infrastructure even would still rely with that, that owning team, right? Because, you know, they're owning, they own production soup to nuts. Um, well, we know, we know that it differs between the organizations, but I want to know your ideal world. I mean, my ideal world, right? Like this is, this is, uh, very idealistic. Um, you know, I would say that no one owns every, anything, everyone owns everything, right? It's more, it's more democratized, right? Um, it, if you, if everyone can contribute to pull requests, everyone can contribute, um, you know, to whatever your, your Git repo is, if you see a security vulnerability, you know, you, you're fully enabled in, uh, to be able to make that modification and, you know, put in a pull request, right. That, I mean, that is the true, uh, let's call it infrastructure socialism, right. Where, you know, everyone, everyone's working together to a common good of making sure, that you have the most secure. Is that realistic? Probably not. You know, folks do need to own things in order for the organization to move forward, in order for folks to to kind of collaborate, right? Like there still still needs to be this person that is ultimately the owner, right? And so I'd say in the case of like web servers and and you know any sort of um, I guess higher or lower, depending on I guess whether you're talking about the OSI model or not. Um, level configuration uh, would likely come back to, you know, whatever, whoever that infrastructure team is, right? And so I would say in the case of the, of testing network infrastructure configuration, right? That would come back to your cloud team, your DevOps team, whatever, whoever owns that infrastructure layer. Um, but I, I don't think it's any different there, right? Like we're still talking configuration as code, we, or at least we should be, right? And like, you know, as we've progressed over recent years, um, you know, we should be looking at that as pets versus cattle, right? So such that uh, if I have a misconfiguration, I should be able to, I'm going to use the word easily here in air quotes, <laughs> easily um, push out a change that would, you know, c- cause a positive impact, fix whatever security vulnerability, fix whatever misconfiguration is there, as opposed to, you know, the old world of, of you know, pets where, Hey, I have to go touch every web server to change. Like, you know, let's like use like TLS version as a as an example, right? Like, I have TLS 1.0 enabled on all my endpoints, right? Oh crap! I need to enable TLS 1.2. Uh, I shouldn't have to go to every server to do that. And and if I do, right, I should be able to to push that out in a distributed fashion and not like SSH web server one vi etc etc web server ssh web server 2 and so on and so forth right um so yeah i mean i'd say like chiefly that responsibility whoever it 
like whoever is ultimately responsible for it. Um, it's I'd say for me, it's less about who is doing it and more about how it should be done. And I would say that, you know, similar to what we were talking about before with applications, it's, it's, it's still configuration as code. Like it should be checked into Git. It should be versioned. It should be reviewed that way. You know, all parties are aware. Everyone, you know, kind of has a, an opportunity to weigh in on, on what they think it should be, but also more importantly, you still have like that auditability of, Hey, this change was made because of this and this change was made by this person. Got it. Yeah, a couple of things. One for all you, all of you animal lovers out there, uh, an alternative maybe like tissues versus hankies as opposed to pets <laughs> versus cattle. It's a lot. There's a lot packed into that statement, you know. Um, the other thing <laughs> related to the topic is um, so Simon Jameson in his ideal world is an infrastructure socialist. <laughs> oh man as he as he as he uh self-quoted um do you agree with that mentality um uh, i and this is ideal world we'll get into like real world scenarios maybe in a second but uh a little bit more i would say 50 50 i agree with the 50 50 uh the socialist aspect of configuration management makes sense to me but i think it, there's a certain level where that's no longer the case i'm i'm happy to own some set of configuration as long as it's specific to the app and hearing Jameson kind of formulated my own, my own mind of what I just said, where it's, if you can generalize something to the point where it's a natural thing that your entire organization would need and should use. An example of that is, Hey, we should be on the specific version of TLS. I think DevOps should own that. And a product engineer should have no choice, but to respect that. If it means working with them to upgrade or test or um, find a, you know a, a happy medium, that's fine. But I, I think that should be less out of the, the hands of a product engineer. When it comes to something that starts to breach application-specific or team-specific needs, I feel like we should have control over that. Um, again, if we need to work uh, in conjunction with security or conjunction with DevOps, that makes sense. But ultimately, we're making application-level decisions, so that should be on the product engineer. Yeah, I mean, so I'm just I was just thinking through the scenario, right? Like, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't have any pets or, or cattle comments, so my <laughs> answers were boring. <laughs> I, I use them, I use them both, but uh, that came up at a conference one time, and I thought it was interesting that uh, someone felt uh, obliged to, to call that out because it is like really grim when you think about it. But um, I, I was just sort of mulling it over my head the, the infrastructure decision that you're talking about, like TLS. Um, and those configurations being in the hands of, of everyone. And I, I think you're right. Like in an ideal world, we'd all review that, be security aware right. and work through it. But how do we, how do we cover that knowledge gap or enforce security requirements when that is the case? Because that would mean, uh, that one of two things needs to happen. Either everyone needs to be self-aware enough to know when the, when a review is happening that they can review for security requirements and those security requirements have to be like, there's so much that goes back to that. So th that means those security requirements have to be really well-defined so that even something as yeah. simple as like TLS or HSTS or any of your security headers are enforced when it comes down to a configuration inside of a pull request. Um, and then if that's not the case and everyone isn't self-aware, which is more the real world, then security has to be involved with every pull request. 
to make sure that those files aren't changed. So how do we, you know, how do we automate that process of like when this file is changed, security needs to review it? You know, where does that standard come into play? So do you think that, so how do you, um, how do you, enforce that or, or make it available to security to review if we're sort of moving into the real world scenario of not everyone is going to be self-aware, uh, that they're not always, you know, security staff is going to be necessarily short. The documentation might not always be up to date. Um, what are some, what is like a simple thing that we could do in an organization to make sure that at, at the very minimum security gets notified when a particular configuration change is happening? That's, I mean, honestly, that's a super tough question. And I, I don't think it bleeds into just security. I think this is a, like, this is a product engineering problem, a DevOps problem, even like go to a granular level of like a, a database engineer. I, I honestly think having like building almost a mental checklist of who do I need to contact for changes? Um, at least what that's something that I've done in the past has been super useful. So, you know, a security level change may not always require security. I, I, you know, if we're rotating a password, I don't need to go and ping a security team and tell them, hey, we're rotating a password. Is that okay? Like, that's, that's nonsense. Um, and I think it goes the same thing with, with other, with other orgs and other fields. So, you know, you make a, say you're working in SQL and you're making a change to a table. At some point, it might get hairy enough where you start being a little bit unsure of yourself. You're not the expert in this field. And that's when you need to go back to that checklist and say, okay, who do I need to contact? contact this person um, or get, maybe get some security eyes on this. And, and unfortunately, that's up to people who are willing to make that effort. Uh, I, I, I don't think there's, a, there's an easy solution to this problem other than being cognizant that you need to double check and treat security and treat um, other organizations as part of your review process and not just good code and good tests. Well, a security, yeah, I mean, I agree with you too for some of that, but a security engineer might say, well, I do need to be told every time you rotate a password because the last time you rotated it, it was password. <laughs> so, you know, like there's Fair that point. aspect of it too, is how do you, so I think that security needs to have a way to put the enforcement of standards in place, have those standards defined. And I think that it's security responsibility to ensure that those are well-documented, defined, and that when you get to it, that there's no excuse for you to do that, but it doesn't prevent you on the, you know, on a manual level from not seeing that documentation. You know, you're, you're only human. So maybe you don't know where that documentation exists. That's its own problem. Um, maybe the training wasn't sufficient. That's its own problem. So if you do rotate that password and make it password, you know, how, how is, how can security be assured that password is secure if it's in a pull request and it's a manual process? Yeah, I, I feel like what you're almost saying is there's a level of automation here that needs to be pulled away from product engineering so that security has a, a safe state of mind. So there's a magical button somewhere that I can click that'll rotate the password, perhaps even send you a notification. That way the review process is eliminated. And I, I think this is going into default configurations, which has an issue of its own because the, the more you abstract, the easier things will be to understand and follow. But when something is not right, it becomes super complicated to debug. And then the documentation is lost, the the, the understanding is lost, and the, the fail-safes are lost. Yeah, I'd say for me, it, 
it comes back to like maturity of deployment pipelines, right? Like there is kind of two aspects here. One is I should be able to, um, I should be able to scan any sort of configuration that's going out to prod, right? Or any environment really. Like I should be, I should be scanning that for known misconfigurations as much as possible, right? And there's tools out there for this. Um, for some reason, the only one that's coming to mind right now is OpenScap, and that's just like. But anyhow, we won't <laughs> we won't talk about that. Um, but then the other side of that too is just kind of that uh, continuous, um, you know, continuous compliance monitoring, right? Where so even if that does get out into the wild, right out into you know my UAT, my production environments, right? I should have sufficient uh, monitoring in place that I catch those things, that those misconfigurations, you know. And so so like going back to the TLS example. If I do say I do give you know full autonomy for a dev team to pick their TLS version, which I get it, like probably not my best choice, right? <laughs> but um, if I do, right, and they pick 1.1, I should have monitoring in place that's like, wait, no, something's not right here. This should be 1.2 or 1.3, whatever you know, version. Um, and and I and the security team should get notified of that, right? So I think that it kind of works both ways, right? I should have a I should have either sufficient controls or rather, I mean, ideally both, I should have sufficient controls in my pipeline so that when things are getting pushed out to prod, I'm scanning them for security misconfigurations as they go live. But then on the other side of that, if I do somehow miss something, I should have sufficient monitoring in place that I catch that, um, you know, if that misconfiguration does actually make it out into the wild. J James, do you feel the same way in terms of laying the hammer down for DevOps related changes so do, do you feel like developers or product engineers should be able to you know go into their applications and double triple the number of threads a certain process uses and just kind of suffer on their own or or do you, do you think in a perfect world you, you should have control over that i so i, I think it's an, again it, it comes back to monitoring right like i i want to empower people as much as possible right I've, I've never in my career really wanted to be a gatekeeper um <laughs> that's just that's just going to cause pain for everyone and my, myself especially, right? Um, and so I think to a certain degree, you have to put in controls that, like, in the case of, like, um, say, like your connection pool, right? Like, I want 100 connections in my connection pool to connect to my database, right? Like, yeah, sure. You can, you can do that if you want, but I should have monitoring to monitor the number of connections that I have available in my database. And if I start running into that limit... Like I should get a notification and then I can go back. I can look, oh, hey, Simon configured his application to have a hundred connections in his DB pool. And I could slap you on the hand and be like, don't do that. And right. And I, but I think it's important that, you know, and ideally we catch that in like a test environment and it doesn't get all the way to prod, but it's, it's again, it's, it's a similar idea, right? Where you're monitoring, you're, you're, you should be mature enough that even when misconfigurations happen, you should be able to catch them, right? Because I think that's kind of, Security misconfigurations are going to happen. Misconfigurations in general are going to happen, right? Like there's no question about that. It's more of like, what can you do to prevent them from getting into the wild or what can you do to catch them after they've been there, right? And I think that that's kind of, a. I, I know we're going off on a tangent here, and uh, but I think that's a per, um, an important aspect here where that, you know, not only do we need to make sure that we're, um, you know, that we're responsible while configuring things, but also at the same time, we need to make sure that there's safeguards and guardrails in place that will catch misconfigurations. Yeah. Get blame. Um, so, yes, I, so I think that what you all are saying, it draws on a lot of the topics we've discussed already. Good testing, uh, writing those, th those tests early and knowing what your, 
um, essentially what your configurations should be. So I think that if I had to boil this down, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, is that security should be responsible for providing um, a, a level of guidance for all of the teams to adhere to. And that should be in the form of, of standards and policy. And then within those standards and policy, that is sort of left up to the development teams to configure against that so that um, security doesn't have to be involved with everything, but they can always go back to a reference. Uh, security can work with teams in product engineering and in DevOps to test for those requirements, like we were talking about before. Uh, and then as far as DevOps is concerned, you know, you're, you're sort of leaning on, um, on engineers to, to configure some of it, but you will be able to react to whatever they're configuring through your enforcement layer, whether that's a monitoring system uh, or your application inspection. Does that sound accurate or did I miss stuff there? Yeah, I mean, that sounds mostly mostly accurate, right? Like, as I said, you got to give folks autonomy to a certain degree. Otherwise, like, you're just going to grind everything to a halt. If every PR needs to be reviewed by, like, a single person or a single sets of people, right? Like, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think it's important that you, it's important that you empower people because also at the same time, right? Like, if, if you can't trust the folks that are delivering code, I think you have larger issues, right? And like, yeah everyone's going to make mistakes regardless of where they work, what they work on. Right. And so it's kind of, that's the important aspect of having monitoring or having controls in the pipeline that are checking for these things. But at the end of the day, like, yeah, you can't just like, I, I, I know I love pull requests and I, I talk about pull requests all the time, <laughs> but you can't have security on every pull request. You can't have DevOps on every pull request. It's, it's just not realistic, right? Like it doesn't scale. And so at a certain point, you just need to trust people to make the right decision. And then you need to have adequate monitoring in place for when they make the wrong decision. Right. And and you do, I mean, if you are that, I don't want to be a gatekeeper either, you know, and if you are that gatekeeper and that is the policy internally, it becomes a tiresome, tiresome endeavor to go through all of those configurations when you could simply test for that. Uh, so I think that it's important to lean on your, your testing teams for some of that that load um, to work through it. Now, um, we we sort of went down that path of pull requests and responsibility uh, differentiation. Um, the other thing I wanted to to just draw on is when it comes to network level configurations, like. Uh, or security configurations when we're talking about like HSTS or what methods are appropriate or what your CSP policy is, where do you two see your responsibilities in that type of uh, sort of edge configuration? I mean, speaking from experience, it's always an infrastructure problem, right? <laughs> I've worked a lot of places where, hey, configure HSTS in the app is too hard. You know, we don't want to do it, uh, so put it on the edge, right? Um, so that's been my career experience. And I know that's like, I, I've been enough places to know that that is, it's, it's like a meme, right? <laughs> it's, it's always an edge problem. Any security configuration headers, right? Like, so 
Um, I don't agree with it, right? Like I'm, I'm very much of the mindset, and this is probably biased to a certain degree, but I'm very much of the mindset that things work best when they're configured closest to the app, right? So if I'm layering a bunch of headers onto your app, right? Bad things might happen, right? <laughs> like it, it might not work out as well as uh, everyone might think. Um, but at the same time, I understand like some things are better solved at the edge and, and sometimes you have to do that, but it's not my first choice, right? So like from my perspective, I think it's, it's again, it's kind of a collaboration thing, right? Where ideally the app owns all of its headers and if they can't, then you fall back to doing it at the edge, but that that's maybe just my perspective. Okay. So in the world, in the ideal world of infrastructure socialism, I have a I have a, you know a question for you. And that is if if we're all contributing to the same project, what is the challenge or what is the biggest blocker to having DevOps configure the application for things like infrastructure protections or um or blanket protections like hsts or something along those lines like what is, what prevents you from taking on that responsibility and i know i'm probably putting you on the spot here but like what is what what prevents you from uh, taking on the responsibility of configuring the application on behalf of the engineering team when it comes to things that you would typically configure on the edge that you control? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a solid question, right? But I think largely it comes back to, to a couple of things, right? Um, the first from my perspective is application behavior, right? I, I don't know what unholy mess I might enact by adding these headers, right? Like some older frameworks do some really ugly things and you never know. Yeah, so Simon, um... How do you feel about you know DevOps being in your application and and making unholy messes? I mean, in, in all honesty, we're probably making most of the mess here. Uh, no, I I agree with Jameson. I don't I don't think it's fair to dump all of this on on him as much as I would love to punt all of this. Uh, you know, what is really infrastructure work? You're gonna have too many legacy applications. You're gonna have too many cl- conflicting frameworks. I, I said it in a previous episode. You know, a dependency upgrade will sometimes make a product engineer lose his mind. So having like a perfect world where, yes, DevOps does all of this, it, I just don't think it can happen. Yeah, Unless I mean, you start from the beginning. I, I think, I mean, I would probably disagree. I mean, I think that you could have DevOps do it as long as that was standardized across the board, right? That... um those components of the configuration are managed by DevOps. Um, but again, you got to start from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, the requirements have to be there, definitely. Right. But you have to, um, like, ideally, what I would want to see is that security is saying, okay, here are the requirements. DevOps is saying, okay, this is how we're going to implement these across an app, across, I don't know what, okay, across <laughs> the application standard. And then that way, engineering teams can focus on not worrying about that part of their application. And when it comes to it, DevOps can say, you, you know, you could figure this application incorrectly. I'm going to fix it by standard. You should be, your application should work within this. That's how I'd like to see it ideally. Um, that, because if you have engineering do it 100% of the time, I, 
in my experience, I just think that DevOps teams, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, but DevOps teams and security teams tend to be smaller than engineering teams. Absolutely. So if you look at it that way, then DevOps can make these small changes within engineering teams, and there's not as much... Um, there's, there's not as much chance of human error because there's less people involved. Maybe that's the wrong way to look at it, but that's that's sort of how I am thinking of it in my head on the fly here. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with that, Ken, right? But I, the one wrinkle I will throw in there is like in the world of Elbaz, which is, you know, load balancer as a service, right? You know, you see you saw this with OpenStack, you see it now with AWS, you know, all the cloud providers is that, I'm getting less and less flexibility over my load balancer. So things like appending headers, which, you know, used to just be like, let me just add a line to the Nginx config and, you know, <laughs> we'll throw a header in there. No big deal. Um, you know, you're getting less control over those. Like in the case of Amazon, right? Like AWS, um, on my ALB, I'm not actually able to append headers, right? And someone in Twitter is going to probably jump all over me and be like, no, that's not true anymore. You know, as of two weeks ago, you can now add headers, right? But um, but no, I mean, like, so I think that that's kind of another important thing is that, you know, if it is, it, if it is a configuration that we are expecting of the application, right, why not add it in the application, right? And I, I agree that controlling it at the edge is the most compliant um, kind of approach, like, and kind of take that one size fits all type approach where, hey, if I apply it at the edge, I know it's applied to everything, right? And yeah, like that's true, right? But as you get less and less control over your edge, I think it's important that, you know, we start to push these things back down to, frankly, in my opinion, where they belong, which is the application, right? Like I shouldn't be sending your HSTS headers. I shouldn't be sending any of your headers, really. Um, you know, that was a shortcut that we took for maybe maybe a decade, two decades, right, <laughs> of appending headers. But, um, you know, it always should have been added at the application tier. Yeah, I mean, I I will agree that it should be added at the application tier because we're always striving for um, that end-to-end -end configuration. And when you put it at the load balancer, there's some gap uh, in a network layer between the application and the load balancer, which ideally we would get rid of. And I think that you're right. As you get less and less control over that, it becomes more and more of an application responsibility but then there has to be consistency and guidance and consistency and configuration. And then DevOps sort of creates those configuration templates and security sort of designs the requirements around those configuration templates so that application teams can take something that is known secure and use it to abide by. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I would say that, you know, this comes back to security testing, right? Where like, if I'm adding course headers or, you know, uh, HSTS headers, whatever, some security header uh, to my application, maybe it's something we should test for, right? Like maybe that's just kind of the approach, right? Is that if I'm going to be adding headers that I want to make sure that, you know, they are in fact there, um, you know, maybe that's the test that we write. Yeah. I mean, that, that means that security has the support, you know, if, if your organization operates in seven different languages, security needs to have those standards for those seven languages so that when they test for it, even though the test is written maybe dynamically, very simply, uh, it's, it's our responsibility to help design those requirements so that when it gets to the engineering teams, they're not thinking a lot about how do I implement this correctly. I think that one of the faults of the security industry is to say, you know, enable whatever, uh, your, your cache directives. And we don't really tell you how 
where in an, I think that where we need to get to is that security helps to show the how, provide it to engineering teams so that they don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about something that we want on every application. I feel yeah. like a security sandbox would be so cool for that. Just like baked in house for a company. This is as, as you're discovering things, kind of document them, ticket them and provide examples. And I, I think it would really help demystify uh, how easy it is to probably uh, fix some of these problems that look so daunting. Yeah, yeah. So you called out another perfect one, Ken, cache control, right? This is another header that folks are like, you know, hey, we have a CDN in front of this. Like, you know, let's put some cache control headers in place. You know, what the hell? We'll just add them on the load balancer, right? And like, that's a horrible idea because, you know, like the application should be in control of what it's of what's being cached by your CDN, right? Like you should not just have a blanket approach there. And, and so, I, I mean, and that's kind of what I come back to is that really all of your headers you know, should be controlled by the application because otherwise when you just layer these things on somewhere else, you're kind of just shortcutting, but also just kind of disregarding any of that application behavior that you would expect. And instead adding a layer that's just modifying everything and, and you know, making it, adding a layer of complexity that, you know, dev may not be entirely aware of. Yeah, I mean, in, in an effort to get to a point where where we have a secure default configuration, putting those things in a layer in front is, is just, you know, it, 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 it leaves an element of risk that you have to accept. And so I guess my point is what we have, what we're trying to do is like, how can we leverage other teams to make sure that if we're going that far down into the application layer so that an engineer is responsible for this, what is the best way that security and DevOps can work together to make sure that what we are providing as a secure default is easy for engineering to use. And that I think that's what this boils down to is that when it comes to, I think we focused a lot on infrastructure security configurations. You know, we, we got on our, our, our uh, train track and we went down it, uh, but I think that that's important. You know, if we come out of this with anything, I think it's important that security and DevOps need to work together to develop a secure default for engineering teams so that if we're going to offload that responsibility to engineering teams, we make it as easy as possible. Absolutely. Cool. Makes sense. Yeah. Got to tell people what, what there is expected of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're bumping up against time here and we could probably go, you know, back the train up, go down the other path of other security configurations, default configurations, library configurations, but, you know, we want to keep it to that easy listening length. So I think we'll wrap it up. Um, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, uh, really appreciate it. And as always, if you want to listen online, you can do so at our website, www.r2, the number two, dso.com reach us on twitter for any questions or comments or feedback uh, at r2dso and uh yeah if you want to send in any questions over email you can send it at security at r2dso.com thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time with jen joining us for some agile scrum project management goodness i think it'll be a, a pretty pretty good episode especially from the culture perspective Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.